Grab your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. My kids have two little ones. They love to watch movies. That's their favorite thing right now to do when it's too cold to go outside. And we do try to limit their screen time the best we can. So what we've done is we have designated Friday night as family movie night. We pick out something kid-friendly, pop the popcorn, and try to make my two-year-old be still, which is not possible. One Friday recently, I wasn't able to join movie night until the movie was about halfway over. So when I sat down and started watching, I had a lot of questions. Okay, who is that and why is that giraffe talking? And what's her deal and why is this giraffe now singing? And who is it? Is that the good guy or is that supposed to be the bad guy? It was all so confusing. And because everyone else knew what was going on, I just zipped my mouth <laughs> and remained lost. But I was reminded that night. That context is important. The context of something is the circumstances surrounding that something so we can accurately understand what that something is. Context is important in many areas of life, but I hope you've heard me say many times before that context is especially important when it comes to God's Word. God chose to communicate to us not just in words or in sentences, but in books through human authors. The Bible is actually a library. It's a collection of books. And while all 66 books of the Bible fit together as one cohesive storyline of God's salvation through Christ, it's also true that each book of the Bible has its own context and theme and purpose. Jumping into the middle of a book of the Bible without understanding the context is kind of like starting a movie in the middle. You can figure out what's going on, and it's not wrong to do that, of course, but it will make a whole lot more sense if you start at the beginning. This is why here at Blue Valley we primarily preach through books of the Bible. You probably know there there are many other methods to preaching. You may have been a part of a church before where they preach through different topics or issues or maybe they picked a different passage each week. Look, there are good and fine ways to do that, but what we do typically is work through books of the Bible from start to finish. Occasionally, we will do something on a topic or have our annual Advent series, but we focus primarily on entire books because it helps us to see the full context. We really believe it's it's the best way to understand what God wants to convey through the original authors. And so you know that I'm not just making this up and coming up here every week and saying what I think sounds good or sounds nice or will make people happy. So that's why we preach this way. We want you and and, and me and all of us to see the big picture and the main purpose of each book of the Bible. We want to track with the author as he goes through his writing. And to that end, you may remember that we're doing something new with this Roman series. We are pausing at the end of each big section of the book to have a summary message. Now, hopefully you remember we did that back in November with Romans 1 through 3. You guys remember that, right? Everybody's nodding their head. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Absolutely. And we summarize those first three chapters of the book of Romans with this one phrase. Why everyone needs Jesus. That's what it's all about. We learn that Paul, a man who had been radically changed by Jesus, literally from a terrorizer of the church to a missionary, He wrote this letter to the Roman church, a church he'd never been to before. He didn't know many of these people. To explain to them the fullness of the gospel message. 
He also wanted to address some conflict that was happening in the church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and he wanted to prepare them to support his next missionary journey to Spain. We established from the beginning that the theme verse of this whole book is Romans 1.16 and 17. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul then began to unpack that verse by starting with the bad news. Do you remember that? We said we're all guilty of sin and worthy of God's judgment. We, we rightly deserve God's wrath because of what we've done. That, that's our big problem. And religion won't fix it. Morality won't fix it. Trying really hard won't fix it. We need help. We need to be saved. And that's what God's done. He provided his own son as a radical solution to fix our sin problem on the cross. Jesus there took our sin. He became our propitiation. You remember that big word and how smart we all felt? Yeah. Then he rose from the dead to give us new life. And because of that, we said, no one is without hope. I don't care who you are, where you've been, anyone and everyone can be saved and made new. So yes, everyone needs Jesus. That's the message of Romans 1 through 3. We need to understand our condition apart from God. Believe the gospel and trust in Christ. And that brings us to the next section, which we're going to summarize today. Romans chapter 4 through 8. And we can sum up this section of the letter with this very simple title you see on the screen. The Transforming Power of the Gospel. Remember, the the gospel is the power of God for salvation. This message, this good news that Jesus saves, it's life transforming. And that's what Paul wants us to see and, and to understand that we have been radically changed in Christ. And this transformation begins the moment we put our faith in Jesus. That's the heart of Romans chapter 4. Do you remember those sermons? We talked about Abraham. Paul used Abraham to make his point because he knew the Jewish people, they really revered him. And he wanted them to see that this gospel message was not some kind of new thing that he was making up or some new invention, but it actually goes all the way back to the beginning. The gospel is God's plan for all time. So look with me at Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Paul wrote, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. As righteousness. That is the key verse of this chapter. Paul quoted Genesis 15, 6 to demonstrate how Abraham was made right with God. That's what that word righteousness means. It means to be made right with God, to have a right relationship with him. And that didn't happen for Abraham because he was a good person. We've established he wasn't always the best guy. So how was Abraham saved? How were all the Old Testament saints saved? How were they made right with God despite their sin? Well, it's simple. It tells us Abraham believed. God made a promise, and Abraham put his faith in the promise. So as we walk through chapter 4, we made a big old deal about faith. And we learned that old phrase from the Reformation of the church, sola fide. You remember what that means? It means faith alone. To be saved. To have a relationship with Jesus, to be made right with God, to go to heaven when you die, it's not faith plus something else. 
It's not faith plus church attendance or faith plus baptism or faith plus being a really good person. It's faith and faith alone in Jesus. And Paul ends chapter 4 by showing us that this truth is what we need to grasp and hear ourselves if we want to experience the transforming power of the gospel. Look at Romans 4, verses 23 to 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his, for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, when we believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in him and what he's done in that very moment, we are counted righteous. And that's the moment everything changes for us. So then, in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul gives us three specific ways the gospel transforms those who put their faith in Jesus. So let's break those down this morning in the time we have left Continuing walking through this section. So here's the first way the gospel transforms us. You want to write this down. Number one, the gospel transforms us from enemy to friend. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That therefore tells us that Paul is making a bit of a pivot here. He's taking what's come before. He's summing it up. He says, therefore, since we've been justified, here's what this means for you. You now have peace with God. Paul talks in this chapter about our relational connection to God. That's why I'm using those those terms friend and enemy. And this passage tells us something that we may not realize. tells us that everyone has a relationship with God. Did you know that? Everyone has a relationship with God. The issue is whether that relationship is good or bad. Whether it's a relationship of friendship or of hostility. And that's not a popular concept. We love to think of God's love for all people, and that's true. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. We love to think of God's desire to save all people, which is also true. 2 Peter 3.9 says God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to reach repentance. But if that's true, then how could we ever be considered an enemy of God? Here's how. Because we made ourselves enemies of God. That's what sin is. Sin is more than an, oops, sorry, God, I messed up again. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean it. No, sin is open rebellion against the creator of the universe. It's choosing to reject God's rule and reign, to reject his loving care and to push him away. James 4, verse 4 says this, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Did you catch that? We make ourselves enemies of God. When we choose to befriend the world and to live in sin, we are choosing to live as an enemy of God. In the second part of chapter 5, we saw that this has been going on a long time. We saw our ancestor, the one we all have in common, Adam, and how our sinful state has come from him. We are born with this sinful nature, and because of Adam and Eve, just like them, we turn away from God. We, too, become his enemy. And because God is holy, because he must deal with evil and sin, because he must be fair and just, when we make ourselves his enemy, 
we fall under his divine wrath and judgment. We earn death. Ephesians 2, verse 3, Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. Again, that is not a very nice thing to think about. Like we don't go around meeting people. Hi, I'm Mike. Are you a Christian or a child of wrath? <laughs> Wouldn't go over well. It's not, but it's true. It's true. Everyone has a relationship with God. You're either an enemy or a friend. You're either heading towards eternal death or eternal life. There's no in between. But here's the good news. What did God decide to do for his enemies? He decided to die for them. Look at Romans 5 verse 8. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son Jesus to die, not in the place of perfect people, but in the place of sinners to take their wrath, our wrath, our judgment on himself so that we could be reconciled to God. Chapter 5 uses that language of reconciliation. That word reconcile means to restore friendly relations between two parties. Reconciliation is how we fix a broken relationship. When I sin against my wife, let me tell you, sometimes I sin against my wife, usually about once a year. Um, kidding. Uh, But when I get angry or when I act selfishly or I I say something I shouldn't, there's this this tension between us. You know what I'm talking about? We don't do the silent treatment in our marriage. That's for middle schoolers, okay? (laughs) Marriage 101, never do the silent treatment. That's not an effective way to deal with conflict. But when I sin against my wife, there's something wrong. There's something amiss in our relational connection. And usually, I know exactly what it is. I'm just trying to ignore it and hope it goes away. (laughs) But eventually, I have to do what's right. I have to go to my wife and apologize, and I take ownership for my wrongdoing. And then, because God's grace in her, she forgives me. And our relationship is reconciled. You see, that's what Jesus did for us. He reconciled our relationship to God, even though the conflict we had with him was infinitely more serious than a marital marital spat. And even though we had no intention of trying to apologize or make things right, we didn't even care about God. God still loved us. So he chose to come to us. Even though we were his enemies, he still wanted us. He wanted to fix our broken relationship so much that he gave up his own son. The second half of Romans chapter 5 talks about how Jesus is a free gift of God's grace. Jesus came to do what Adam and I and you and me, we could never do. And what he accomplished brought us justification in life where our sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So now, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are transformed from enemy to friend. So let me ask you this morning. Are you a friend of God? If you are, do do you grasp the significance of friendship with a holy, infinitely loving God? Uh, Researchers today have found that we live in what they call a loneliness epidemic. With technology, we're, we're supposedly more connected than ever before, yet people today are lonelier than they've ever been. And you can imagine how the pandemic made this problem exponentially worse. I read a study recently that found that 36% of all Americans 
including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, deal with what they classified as serious loneliness. And what an opportunity that gives us to tell the world that God can be their friend. Look, I want you to know if that's you, if you struggle with loneliness, please know you're not alone. Moms of young children, single folks, widows, widowers, those who live on their own, whoever, please remember that God is the greatest friend you could ever have. Despite how you feel, He is closer to you than you know. He loves you more than you know, and He is working in your life right now. And one day, He will be with you fully and finally forever. Till then, let me encourage you to find human connection in His church. The local church is supposed to be a family. We're not a business or a social organization or just a group. The local church is family, and it's the best place for us to combat loneliness, particularly in what we call here at Blue Valley Sunday School. Sunday School is where we connect relationally, and we take care of one another, and we we build those tight-knit connections. So I want to challenge you this morning. If you're not involved in a Sunday School class, you were missing out on the community we have here at church. You're missing out on an opportunity to to experience what it means to be a friend of God. Not only that, but we need to remind ourselves of the transformation we have in Christ. From enemy, hell-bound sinner, rebel, to friend of God. That's the first way the gospel transforms us. Here's the second. Number two, gospel transforms us from slave to slave. Hang on a second. That that didn't sound like much of a transformation there. It kind of doesn't sound all that positive either. Why didn't you say slave to freedom or slave to child of God? Well, why those things are true, we're going to get to that. Think back with me and look back with me what we learned in Romans 6 and 7 so we can see why this language of slave to slave is actually a good thing. Let's recall that in Romans 6, Paul's defending the idea of grace. He answers two similar questions. They both have to do with whether Christians should keep on sinning now that they have grace. And how did he answer both questions? What did he say? He said, no, no way. But because he's writing a long letter, he did say some more. And to make his point, he uses this imagery of slavery and freedom. He wants us to see that the reason grace doesn't free us to sin is because we have been freed from sin. And what we're now joined to Christ. Here's where we see this idea of being freed from sin. Look at Romans 6, verses 6 through 7. It says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Look again at Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You see that, slave to slave? So before Jesus, we were slaves to sin, and we were bound by it, and like slavery, we, we could not free ourselves. We were in chains. We didn't have the key. We couldn't obey God. We couldn't work our way out of it. What we needed was to be freed, and that's what God did in Christ. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he purchased our freedom. In a sense, we died with him, our old self, our sinful self, died with Christ, so sin is no longer our master. And when he rose, we rose with him as a new person, with a new life and new freedom. But here's the key. This newfound life and newfound freedom is not the ability to just go out and sin and do whatever we want. That's what the world thinks is freedom, but that's a mirage. Living in sin is never freedom. It's actually the opposite. It enslaves you and binds you. So here's what we learned. Do you remember this? We said true freedom is found in obedience to God. Romans 6, verses 22 and 23, look at that. It says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, there's the slave to slave, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. We are still slaves, but slavery to God is actually freedom. That's the power of grace. Grace frees us from sin that hurts us, and now we're free to live for God. We're we're free to live the life God's designed us to live. We're free to honor him and glorify him in everything we do. Then in Romans 7, we learn that not only are we free from sin, but we're also free from the law. Remember, the law is not bad. Ten Commandments, all those regulations, they came from God. They're good, but because of our sin, the law only makes things worse for us. We know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. We don't have the ability to carry it out. So Paul gets very vulnerable. He shares about his struggle in his own life. He says, well, we're saved, so we desire to live for Jesus, but we still have this sinful nature. But we want to do what's right, but we keep messing up. It's frustrating. It's defeating. So what's the solution? Well, the solution and the key to the Christian life is knowing and believing and embracing the fact that you are a slave to God. And look, we know that word slave is a tough word. We recoil a bit at that thought because we know the history of slavery in our nation And the idea of being owned and giving up your rights to someone else, that's a foreign concept in today's culture. But it's really interesting that when Paul introduces himself to the Roman church in the very first words of this letter, Romans 1.1, he says this. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. ESV and most translations use that word servant, but it's the same word from Romans 6 that's translated slave. Why does Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian to ever live, why does he delight? Why does he choose to call himself a slave of Jesus? There's two reasons that come to mind. First, Paul calls himself a slave to Christ because becoming a Christian means making Jesus your master. And this is where some folks miss the boat. When you follow Jesus, not only do you make him your Savior, but you also call him your Lord. That's why we use that word surrender. That's one of our five S habits here at Blue Valley. To follow Jesus means to surrender, to to give up everything we have, including your very life, to take up your cross, to live every moment of every part of your life in honor of him, in service to him. That's the Christian life. There's another reason. 
Paul identifies himself as a slave to Christ. He recognizes being a slave to Christ is actually the highest honor we could have. Being a slave to Christ is not just a good thing. It's the thing we were made for. You see, we exist to bring glory to Jesus, to love and serve him. And becoming his slave, giving everything to him, is the very way we find our purpose and joy in life. That's why slavery to God is true freedom. It's when you embrace the gospel. When you put faith and faith alone in Jesus, you are freed from slavery to sin. And you become a slave to God. From slave to slave. From death to to life, from bondage to true freedom. That's the second way the gospel transforms us. Here's the third and last, number three, from prisoner to son. We've made clear sin is binding. It's like a chain. We're guilty, and therefore we're also like prisoners. We've been sentenced to death, and we await our judgment. Do you know in America the average death row inmate spends a decade in prison before they're executed. Can you imagine that? Spending every day for 10 years in prison, knowing that certain unescapable death is coming. Thinking about that, living with that weight on your shoulders, that's difficult to think about. But imagine one day you find out that you get to walk out completely freed of all charges against you. It, it actually happened. I read recently about a man in Florida who spent 30 years on death row and newfound evidence came out that totally exonerated him and he walked out completely free after 30 years. Can you imagine what he must have felt? Here's the difference, though, with us. We will not be found innocent. We all know we're guilty. We deserve to die. And apart from Christ, we live as death row inmates behind bars and yet, because of Jesus, we now have freedom. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation. All the charges have been dropped. All your guilt, your sin has been wiped away. Your sentence has been overturned. You get to walk off death row. And it only gets better from there. Because you aren't just freed from prison to live on the streets. But you go from prisoner to son or daughter of God. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Man, you, you want to talk about a radical transformation? This is as radical as it gets. From death row inmate to adopted son or daughter of the king of the universe. From guilty sinner to co-heir with Christ. And as we continue in Romans 8, we see that God continues to transform us. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, so we're being made like him. And God is working all things together for our good. And one day he promises that we will be glorified with him forever. This is the transforming power of the gospel. From enemy to friend, from slave to slave, from prisoner to son. 
There is no greater power than gospel power, and there is no greater transformation than gospel transformation. And if you put your faith in Jesus, these things are true for you. So here's the question as we close. How do we respond to this? Greatest news in the world. What do we say? Well, to conclude this section of Scripture, Paul actually asked the same question to himself. Look with me at Romans 8.31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? What do we say? What can we say about these amazing truths? Paul gives us the words to say. They're in divinely inspired words. And they're some of the greatest words in all of Scripture. In fact, last week, they made a room full of Baptist clap after I read them. So, Romans 8, 31 to 39. The key to this great passage is Paul's confidence. What makes these words so powerful is the definitive, no doubt, matter-of-fact way they're written. They're not just words on a page to be memorized. They're not just fancy theological truths to be pondered. These are life-changing realities. And look at Paul's final sentence here, verse 38 and 39. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice he says, for I am sure. Your translation, other translations might say, for I am convinced. This is the response to the transforming power of the gospel. It's to be sure, to be convinced of God's love for you, to be confident of what Christ has done for you. So the question this morning is, are you sure? Can you say these verses for yourself along with Paul? Have you personally experienced the transforming power of the gospel? And if so, is this where you find your confidence for life? The world tells us to find our, our confidence, our security in our bank accounts or our career or our family or, or in how good we are, how spiritual we are. But the gospel says, no, we find our confidence in Christ. We look to him and what he's done and how he saved us and how he will always love us. And it's that gospel confidence that causes us to live gospel-changed lives, lives that glorify Jesus it's what causes us to experience uh, peace and security in our faith. It's what enables us to have joy in the midst of chaos. It's what drives us out to reach the lost and share the gospel. It's what, send us, it's what sends us out to the nations to plant churches. So church, if we are going to be confident and sure and passionate about one thing, let's make it this. Romans 4 through 8, the transforming power of the gospel, it can transform you. It can transform anyone. That's our message. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.